challenges, with excitement, with, with things that really are important to us. And letters are like that. Some we discard, some we want to read and to know about. Is the letter from someone that's important to me? And does the letter contain valuable and important information? Well, today we're commencing a series of studies in a letter. A letter found in the Bible, written by somebody really important and containing some hugely significant facts and truths. Now, the letter was written by the Apostle Paul. Paul was one of the key leaders in the church in the New Testament. So right the way throughout the New Testament period, or, or through most of it, Paul was one of the key leaders, if not the key leader, in the church. He was an apostle. And that simply means that he was appointed by God, and he was God's special messenger. That's what the word apostle means. And he was given that special role of being one of a number, 12 or so, uh, key leaders who had that special authority from God to bring God's word to the people and to lead the church. And he wrote a whole load of letters to a whole group of different people and different churches, some of which we have in the Bible, some of which haven't survived. For some reason, God decided not to keep them in the Bible for us, uh, although they're alluded to throughout the, the different letters that we read. But we've got a whole group of them in the New Testament for us. And one of the letters that Paul wrote to was to a, a group of Christians, to the church in the city of Colossae. And that letter is simply known as the Colossians. Colossians, after the name of the city, Colossae. And it's the letter of Paul to the church, to the Christians in Colossae, the Colossians. And Colossae was located on the south bank of the river Lycus, and it's in the interior of the Roman province of Asia, which is now in modern-day Turkey. And there's a picture of a map there for you. And you can see uh, modern-day Turkey. Here's Turkey here. This is modern-day Turkey. This was the province of Asia Minor, and province of Asia, and here's Israel, and here's Cyprus. And here's Colossae here. And Paul, as he's writing this letter, as we'll find out, is right the way up here. He's in prison in Rome. And he's writing to this church in Colossae. A long way to send a letter. And over the next four months, we're going to work through this hugely important letter from Paul. And we're going to learn what we can from it. And we're going to seek to apply it to our lives today. It was written by Paul to a particular group of people in a specific context 2,000 years ago. But because it was written under the inspiration and under the direction of the Holy Spirit, even though it was written all those years ago, it is still intended for our use today. The Bible says all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for correcting and teaching and rebuking and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be equipped for every good work in Christ Jesus. So every little bit of the Bible that we have is useful for us, even if it was written to a group of people who lived in a different time, a different place, a different culture to us. It's written by Paul uh, under the inspiration of God for us today as well. Paul probably wrote the letter when he was in Rome in prison in about 60 or 61 AD. We can't exactly be sure, but if you piece together the chronology of Acts and the, New, the rest of the New Testament, Paul was probably in prison in, in about 60, 61 AD, and he probably wrote it down, and Timothy wrote it down for him. So Paul would be sitting there uh, under imprisonment of some kind, probably house arrest, and Timothy was allowed to visit him. And so Paul would tell Timothy what to write, and Timothy wrote it down. And then this letter was carried by two men, Tychicus and Onesimus. They carried it from Rome all the way over here where Paul was in prison and they carried it all the way to the church in Colossae over here. And Paul wrote the letter for two chief reasons, two principal reasons. Firstly, he wanted to remind the Christians in Colossae how they had become followers of Jesus, how they'd become Christians in the first place. How had this happened and what had caused them to do it? And how had they uh, become right with God? How had they entered into this relationship with God? And then secondly, he wanted to teach the Christians there what it means to follow Jesus day by day. Many of Paul's letters, the, the first half or a significant chunk of it, teaches who we are in Christ, 
who we are uh, as Christians, what our new identity is, and then out of that, flowing from that, what our life should look like. It's never the other way around. It's always flowing from who we are in Christ and from what God has done for us. And so Paul, in the second half of the letter, or flowing from his teaching about who we are in Christ and what God's done for us, he teaches us and he teaches the folks in Colossae there what it means and what it looks like to follow Jesus day by day in everyday life. Now, we don't know the full details, but it seems as if the people there, the church there, had been going about four or five years, and the church there were beginning to listen to some uh, deceptive teaching, some wrong teaching, some false teaching, probably from other Christians or maybe even people claiming to be Christians who weren't really Christians at all. And they were also being influenced by the non-Christian worldviews that were around them. And that happens all the time to us, doesn't it, too, if we're not careful. There are so many worldviews around us that are uh, competing with the worldview, with the biblical worldview. And these folks in Colossae were finding themselves being influenced by these non-Christian worldviews, just as we can today. And so Paul wrote this letter to teach them uh, what it means to live every day for Jesus, but also to, uh, to know and to be able to spot these false teachings. Paul warns them about being deceived by fine-sounding arguments. He warns them not to be taken captive by deceptive philosophy. He warns them about adding parts of the Jewish law to the gospel, to their simple faith in Jesus. He warns them about people trying to make them observe special days, as if that would somehow make them more holy or, or God would love them more. Or telling them not to eat certain things, again, as if somehow that would make them better Christians. He warns them about people who were downplaying who Jesus was, who were saying that Jesus wasn't completely God. And we're going to see that in two weeks' time, that Jesus was 100% God. He was the, the image of the invisible God. And he warns them about people who were worshipping angels or worshipping angels alongside Jesus. And essentially these wrong teachings that were infiltrating the church at Colossae were encouraging the people there to believe that, that Jesus wasn't enough, that, that what they'd learned about Jesus, that he could save them by simple faith in Jesus through what he'd done on the cross, that that wasn't enough, that they had to, to do more things in addition to trusting in Jesus. There were things they had to do for God to love them more. There were things they had to experience beyond just living for Jesus day by day, that somehow or some other they had to add to Jesus. They needed to add to Jesus to get right with God. And they needed to, to add to Jesus to grow as Christians. They were being misled by the idea, by a whole variety of different ideas that were infiltrating the church, that Jesus wasn't all they needed, that there was more. That somehow the simple gospel that, uh, that Epaphras, as we're going to see, Epaphras had delivered to them, wasn't sufficient. They needed more. And Paul says, that's wrong. You just need Jesus. Now, the church in Colossae was probably started by a man called Epaphras in around 53 or 55, uh, 56 AD, about five years or so before Paul wrote this letter. Paul had never visited Colossae as far as we know, but he'd heard about the church from Epaphras. And he'd heard that there were some great things going on in the church. And Paul commends the church for a lot of good stuff. But there were also some worrying signs, some worrying signs that people were being led away from the truth the truth about Jesus and what it means to follow him. And so Paul wrote this letter. And nothing has changed, has it, in 2,000 years. The truth about who Jesus is and how we get right with God hasn't changed. That gospel, that good news about Jesus and how we get right with God, it is unchanging. It goes on through history. But that truth is always under constant attack. Constant attack left, right and centre and sometimes even from within the church. You know, if you watch certain so-called Christian TV channels, you'll see some good stuff. But you will also, see, sadly, see some really crazy stuff. 
stuff that chips away at who Jesus is in ways that we're going to see in this letter, or chips away at how we get right with God, or teaches that we need more than just the gospel, more than Jesus, more than just faith in Jesus. And sadly, on a regular basis, influential church leaders and uh, people who lead churches around the world start teaching all sorts of things that are unbiblical. And we see it in our day-to-day where, where, where Christian writers begin writing books. They start out well and they start publishing books that attack the gospel. They attack who Jesus is. They attack the way to heaven. And it's ever so subtle and it comes in drip, drip, drip and we find ourselves being influenced by it if we're not really careful. And it can even find its way into the songs that we sing in church. You know, most people get their theology, you may want to disagree with me on this, but most people get their theology from the songs that we sing in church. That's why throughout the history of the church, the the, the hymns that we sing and the songs that we sing are so important because in an age until relatively recently, the majority of the church-going population were illiterate. And so how do people learn their theology? How do they learn what they knew about God? It was through singing hymns. And that's why hymns need to be understandable and they need to be biblically accurate. That's why it's so important that we uh, are on on our guard about what we read, what we listen to, what we watch on on TV, even so-called Christian TV channels, and even what we sing in the songs that we sing in church. But the antidote to wrong teaching isn't to study the wrong teachings. We can spend our lives, you know, I get emails left, right, and center from different people flashing up this heresy and this thing, this is being taught by this person, and I could spend my life just just studying wrong teachings. And there is some value in knowing what people are teaching, but actually the antidote to wrong teaching is to study truth, study the right teaching. You know, the the people who work in banks, who handle banknotes, the way that they spot dodgy, false banknotes, forgeries, is to study not not the forgeries, but is to study the real thing. And if they study the real thing over and over and over again, then when they come across a forgery, they can spot it, and it stands out. And the same is true with us in the Bible and with our theology, in other words, what we believe about God. We need to study our Bibles, so write this down, we need to study our Bibles so that we can spot and refute wrong teaching. Don't just leave it to the elders, don't leave it to Bible teachers. Every single one of us needs to be studying our Bibles so that we can spot wrong teaching when it comes, so that we're looking at the real thing, this is the real thing, this is the genuine article, and as we study the real thing, when we come across the false thing, whether it's from this pulpit or whether it's from a, from a, a book that we read or a song that we sing or a TV program that we watch, when we see the wrong thing, then we can spot it because we know the truth. And not only can we spot it, but then we can refute it and we can stand for the truth and we know the truth and we're able to defend the truth of the Bible. It's great, isn't it? Every day, and I guess a lot of us struggle to do this, but it's great every day to spend time reading our Bibles, perhaps a few verses devotionally and praying, what we call a quiet time, and that's fantastic. But that's not enough, really, for us. If we're going to be those men and women equipped for every good work, Paul writes to Timothy, doesn't he? And he says that that all Scripture, all of the Bible is God-breathed. It's all come from God, and it's useful for correcting. So we need to be ready to correct wrong teaching when we see it. Not just leaving that to people who fill the pulpit or write books or are church leaders, but every single one of us so that we are ready to correct, to rebuke, so that when we see wrong teaching, we can stand up against it. We need to be regularly studying the Bible in greater depth, not just a few verses devotionally so that we not only become familiar with it, but we know it at a deeper level so that we're ready to defend the truth. So here's a challenge for you as we go into 2016. I'm I'm sure that already you are loaded up to the 
to the eyeballs with, with uh, uh, New Year's resolutions, whether that's, you know, I'm going to stop smoking, or I'm going to stop biting my nails, or I'm going to do this, or do that less, or read my Bible more, or, or, or all the rest of it. I've just got something that, that will last until the end of this month. I thought, let's try and be realistic about what we can all cope with. So on your, on your seat, you should have a little page, and it just says Colossians Reading Log. And, and what I want to challenge you to do and, and encourage you to do, and I'm going to, hold, I'm going to ask you this question each week because I'm preaching in these next few weeks, and you can ask me the question because I'm going to do it, okay? Is I want you to challenge you to read Colossians every day. The book of Colossians takes about 12, 15 minutes for an average reader to read. This is easily doable once a day till the end of this month. And if you read the book of Colossians, 12 minutes, 15 minutes, once a day till the end of this month, and just put a tick against each day, put this in your Bible, take it home with you, and by the end of this month, you will know the book of Colossians really, really well. You will know it really, really well. I was at a youth weekend many years ago when I was about 15, 16, and the guy who was preaching uh, and taking the weekend, he, he was speaking on Colossians. I don't remember anything he said about Colossians, but what I do remember was him challenging us over the weekend to read Colossians once in the morning, once at lunch, and once at night. And he said, by the end of the weekend, you'll have read it lots of times. I can't remember how many times that is, but lots of times. And you will know Colossians really, really well. So there's a challenge for you as we go into 2016. And let's try and do that as we go through this month. God won't love you anymore for it, but you will know the Word of God better as a result of it. Now, Paul was writing this letter to Colossians, and as he was doing so, he was doing so in part because of the news he'd received from Epaphras about how the people there had heard about Jesus and had trusted in him. But he'd also heard some, some bad news as well. There was good news and there was bad news. So let's read the first eight chapters, uh, sorry, the first eight verses. I've changed Colossians. The first eight verses, so you have to be ready to spot wrong teaching. You see, there's not eight chapters in Colossians. The first eight verses of Colossians chapter 1. The first eight verses of Colossians chapter 1. This is Paul writing. He's in prison. He's in Rome. He's dictating this to Timothy. Timothy gives it to Tychicus and Onesimus, and off they go to take it to Colossae. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Paul begins this letter in verse 1, and he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers, in the Greek it's brothers and sisters, in Christ at Colossae. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. Here's Paul dictating this letter to Timothy, and he's writing to the holy and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae. And in Paul's opening lines, his very opening words, he uses a word that, will come, that he will come back to, and we'll come back to this morning, and that word is grace. And God's grace simply means God treating us in a way that we don't deserve. When we sing about amazing grace, that's what we're singing about, God treating us in a way that we don't deserve. And Paul wants to remind these Colossian Christians that their relationship with God through Jesus is all because of God's grace. It's all because God has treated them in a way they don't deserve. They haven't earned this. They've been given it as a free gift through Jesus. In verse 3 he says, We always thank God, the Father 
of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love, and the Greek there is sacrificial love, you have for all the saints. Every time Paul and Timothy pray for the Christians in Colossae, says Paul, they thank God for them because they've heard about their faith in Christ and their love for all the saints. Now the word saint, we actually had that word in, in the uh, hymn that we sung earlier. The word saint simply means God's holy people. It's a, it's a word the Bible uses to speak about those who've trusted in Jesus. So if you have trusted in Jesus, then you are a saint. You don't have to wait to do something good or to be someone special. That, that's a kind of nonsense invented by somebody. When you trust in Jesus, the Bible teaches that you become a saint, a holy one. You get to be declared holy. You get to be declared perfect in God's eyes. You become part of his holy people, a people that belonged to him. And Paul was congratulating these Colossians on the faith that they had in Jesus and the love that they had for God's holy people, for the other saints in Christ. In other words, the other Christians. And in verse 5 he says, The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you've already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. Something had radically changed this group of people in Colossae. And it had radically changed them so that they'd placed their faith in Jesus. It wasn't placing their faith in Jesus that had radically changed them. It was something they had discovered which had radically changed them so that they placed their faith in Jesus and then began to love those around them in their church family with a sacrificial love. And in this verse, Paul says that their faith and love springs from, it's the result of what they discovered when they heard the good news preached to them. This good news was what the Bible calls the gospel, that package of good news about getting right with God through trusting in Jesus. And this package of good news, the gospel, had not only changed their lives, and it had, but Paul says it was changing many people's lives right across the known world. Paul says this, all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and is growing. Can we have that verse up? Thanks. Just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You know, the only thing truly capable of changing people's lives is the gospel, is the good news. It doesn't matter where it is, what period of history we're in, it doesn't matter where people live, the only thing that can truly transform and change people's lives is the gospel. Education is great, poverty relief is great, equality is great, but the only thing that will change people's lives, truly change lives, is the gospel. And it's important that we put our time and our efforts into poverty relief and, and education and all these wonderful good causes. That's part of what it means to follow Jesus. But these things in themselves will not change people's lives forever, for all eternity. The only thing that will change people's lives and will change communities and transform people is the gospel. And so if that is true, then we need, write this down, we need to be deeply committed to doing all that we can to spread the gospel. Yes, we should be committed to good causes. That's part of the outflow of following Jesus. But the only thing that will truly transform a person's life this year is by trusting in Jesus. That will transform their lives so that they then want to be changed in other ways. And as we go into 2016, I want to challenge you to write down the name of three people that you are going to aim to share the gospel with. On your outline, there's space there for you to do that. You know, if we don't write people's names down, if we don't kind of plan to do this sort of thing, it never quite happens. I have a to-do list on my computer and I try and follow that each day and it kind of gets longer and longer and longer. But if we don't write things down, if you're like me anyway, what happens is those things, that they just become wishes that never quite happen. 
And so it's important, write some people's names down. Just take some time right now to write three people, maybe one person, maybe five people, I don't know, but three is a good start to write about three people that you want to share the gospel with in 2016. And I want to encourage you to pray for those people daily, to pray for those people and to be intentional about building a relationship with them so that you can share the gospel with them in 2016. You might not be in a position to share the gospel with them yet. You might just have met them, but it's about building friendship and relationship so that that bridge is built to be able to share the good news of Jesus with them. But what is the gospel? What is this good news? What, is the wo- what does the word mean? Well, the word gospel simply means good news, but when we read of the gospel in the Bible, it refers to some, some unique and very special good news. Here it is in a nutshell. The Bible teaches us that we were created to live in an amazing relationship with God. But because of the sin of Adam way back in the Garden of Eden, we have all inherited sin because we all descend from Adam. And so we find ourselves as sinners. And because of God's holiness, God cannot have a relationship with those who are sinners. And the Bible says we've all sinned. We're all sinners. And so each one of us is separated in and naturally of ourselves, separated from God. The Bible tells us that God is a God of justice and that he will judge the world through Jesus and that all those who have failed to trust in Jesus will receive eternal punishment. But the Bible also tells us that God loves each one of us And so instead of judging and punishing us, he sent his one and only son, the Lord Jesus, to come and to take the punishment for us as he was put to death on the cross. Jesus took your sins, he took my sins upon himself. And then God the Father poured out his holy wrath upon his son on the cross. So that if we look in faith to Jesus, knowing that he has taken the punishment for us, if we plug into what he has done for us, knowing that we could never pay the price fully, then God will forgive our sin if we turn away from our old way of living, turn away from our sin, and instead follow Jesus. And he will give us not only forgiveness, but he will give us, the Bible says, the holiness and the perfection of Jesus. We'll still sin, but God will begin, God will think of us in that instant as being as holy as Jesus. And so we get to have this amazing relationship with God. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't that just the most amazing, mind-blowing news that we could start 2016 with? that we were destined for hell, but through God's grace, through God treating us in a way that we don't deserve, through Jesus coming and dying on the cross, we get the opportunity to have our sins forgiven and to be declared holy. And we get forgiveness, we get holiness, we get eternal life, we get this wonderful relationship with God, and it is all through Jesus. We, we can't do anything to earn it, we don't deserve it, we can't get it of ourselves. It's God's grace, and God's grace is God treating us in a way he doesn't deserve. And it's this good news that transforms people's lives. And it's this good news when people encounter this good news and accept it and embrace the Lord Jesus as their Lord and Savior that transforms people. And it's this good news that we need to be deeply committed to sharing with those around us. Isn't that phenomenal good news? No wonder it's called good news, the gospel. Because this, this news transforms people forever. It changes people. Not just for a little bit, not just like education does or poverty relief does. This transforms lives forever but it cost God everything. Now, one of the problems in the church in Colossae was that people were saying that God's grace expressed in Jesus, this this gospel that we've heard about, wasn't quite enough, that you had to do certain things or maybe have certain special experiences as well 
And Paul wanted to bring them back to the truth of the gospel, that it's God's grace that we experience in and through Jesus that makes us right with him and gives us eternal life. The trouble is that people are never satisfied. Because we are, by nature, we're proud, we like to think that there's something that we can do. So even if we've been a Christian for many years, we still like to think that we can add to what Jesus has done and that somehow God needs us to do more things and, and, and that we need to earn God's love somehow. People always want to add to God's grace. We think if we do certain things or if we live a certain way, then we'll be more acceptable to God or maybe God will love me a little bit more. What we need to understand as the Christians in Colossae needed to understand that it all starts and ends with God's grace. And any good works, any good behavior that we choose to do comes from encountering God's grace. The good things we do should be a response to God's grace, not an attempt to try and earn God's grace. Look at the diagram on your outline and on the screen. People think that, and even people who've been Christians for many, many years, who've perhaps never really grasped the truth of what God's grace really means, that it really is everything given to us in Christ, and that we can't add anything to it, people still think that somehow they need to add to that and that they're not lovable enough. You see, it's not about how lovable we are. It's about how lovable Jesus is and how perfect Jesus is. And Jesus has done it all. And so when we plug into Jesus, God sees Jesus in us. And he no longer sees our sin. We don't need to add to it. What people try and do is what happens up here. So here we are and we think, if I can do good things, then I'll be able to enter into God's grace, God's good favor. I'll be able to benefit from eternal life and all of those wonderful things. And Paul says, and the Bible says, no, that's not true. That's wrong. That's wrong. What should happen is that as we know and understand and encounter God's grace, that as a response from that, as we accept it and embrace it, as we embrace Jesus, the messenger, the bringer of God's grace, that will lead to good works. That will drive us to good works. That the good things we do are an overflow, a response, an outpouring of encountering God's grace. And so we will start behaving the way that God wants us to do out of a response to what God has done for us, not as an attempt to try and earn God's favor. And when we truly get our heads around God's grace, probably we never will this side of heaven, but when we, when we truly begin to understand God's grace, then it will transform our life. So instead of coming to church thinking, well, maybe I need to come to church today and, 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 and God will be more pleased with me, I'll read my Bible, share my faith, serve others, give to God's work, help the poor. Instead of doing those things out of some kind of religious duty, the biblical response, God's way of living, is that we do so because we're inspired by God's grace. And we do so because we're in love with the God who first loved us. Because we've encountered God's grace, because we've encountered his amazing, outrageous grace in Jesus. The only response is to say, I'm just going to give you everything, Lord. You deserve everything. I can't earn it. I'm just going to give you everything. That's what Paul says, isn't he, in, in, in Romans 12. He says, in view of God's mercy, let us offer our bodies as living sacrifices, which is your spiritual. The Greek word is logical. It's the only logical, rational response to who God is, who is and what he's done for us. is just to give him our lives. And that's what Paul wanted to remind the Christians at Colossia. Look again at verses 4 to 6. We've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored for, up for you in heaven and that you've already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. Paul was commending them for their faith in Jesus and for the sacrificial love they have for other Christians. And he says that this behavior, this kind of godly living, was the result of encountering God's grace. He says that their faith and that their love 
had sprung from the hope that was stored up for them in heaven. When they heard and responded to the gospel, the good news that they could be right with God through trusting in Jesus and had an eternity with Jesus to look forward to, it had changed their way of living. They hadn't changed their way of living in order to earn God's love. They'd encountered God's love and it had transformed the way they lived. And in verse 7, Paul says, all over the world this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. Just as it's been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. The gospel had been producing fruit amongst the Christians in Colossae. It had been changing the lives uh, of these folks here so that they loved Jesus more and more and that they loved other Christians more. And this was all since they had understood God's grace in all its truth. They'd understood that they were forgiven. They were made holy. They'd understood that they now had a relationship with God through Jesus, that they had eternal life, that they were free from condemnation. They could never be separated from God's love, that they had the Holy Spirit living in them, that they had been adopted as God's children, that they were complete in Christ. And all of these amazing facts and a whole load more were true, not because of what they had done, but because of what God had done through Jesus, God's amazing grace and when they'd understood what God was offering them as a free gift they had accepted it they had embraced it and as a response they turned away from their sin and they loved Jesus and they loved other Christians and they learned about the offer of God's grace from Epaphras Paul says you learned it from Epaphras a dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love can you have that slide up please in the spirit Paul's people's lives are transformed when people like Epaphras serve God and tell others about God's grace expressed in the person of Jesus. And when those people understand and accept God's grace as found in the gospel, then they place their faith in Christ and, in, uh, and they give him their love. And this in turn leads them to love God's people. And of course it will lead to all sorts of other godly behavior as well. Paul just chooses here to focus on sacrificially loving other Christians. The Christians at Colossae needed reminding of what God had already done in their lives. They didn't need to add anything to simple faith in Christ, simple faith in Jesus. You know, as we go into 2016, we need reminding of the same thing. If I want to change, write this down, if I want to change, I need to understand and accept God's grace. If I want to change, maybe you've been struggling as a Christian, you think, I'm just not changing, I'm not becoming the person I want to be. The solution to that isn't to try harder. The solution to that isn't to kind of do more and more New Year's resolutions, good though aims and objectives are. The solution is to focus on God's grace. Look at God's grace. Be blown away by God's grace. And, and in response to God's grace, if we're truly saved, if we're truly a believer, as we look at God's grace, as we focus on it, as we meditate upon it, it will change us. It has to. If we're truly uh, our followers of Jesus, Maybe this morning you've never understood God's grace and, and even this morning you're not really quite getting what I'm saying. Can I challenge you this year to, to look at God's grace, to look at what it means? We have a great course called Christianity Explored which is a means of exploring what the Christian message is all about, this, this grace of God. And if you're interested in doing that to, to understand what this grace is so that you can make an educated response as to do I embrace and accept that grace or do I reject it? Then why not sign up? and do Christianity Explore this year so that your identity and your destiny will be changed forever as you, uh, if you accept that grace of God. You'll become a child of God. You'll be forgiven. You'll be made holy, given eternal life. And as you experience this amazing grace, not only will your identity change, but your behavior will as you respond 
to what God has done for you. See, we don't behave our way into a new identity. We have a new identity in Christ, and that transforms our behavior. The key to 2016 is not trying to be a better person and making lots of New Year's resolutions, but to, un- uh, to understand and to accept God's grace. And even if you've accepted God's grace and have trusted Jesus in the past, as I guess most of us have here today, as we go into 2016, it can be so easy to fall into legalism. In other words, thinking that we have to, to do certain things, laws and rules and regulations. We can fall into this trap of still thinking that I need to do things for God to really love me. Because we look at ourselves naturally and we think there's not a lot lovable about me that a holy God would want to love me. Why would he do that? And so we try and change it in and of ourselves and we, we, we try and work harder and all the rest of it. If I do this more, if I do that more, God will love me. That's not how it works. We don't look at ourselves as horrible old us, if we've trusted in Jesus, we change. We have a new identity. God sees us as his children. He sees us as holy, as saints. He sees us as those he's entered into a relationship with forever. The Bible says we are united with Christ. We are one with God forever, and nothing can change that. That is our new identity if we've trusted in Jesus. So we don't need to earn God's love. We need to do good things but out of the response, out of the overflow of having encountered and accepted God's grace. Doing good things, behaving like Jesus is obviously really important. But it's crucial that we do these things as a response to God's grace and not as a means of trying to earn God's love and his favor. God already loves you more than you could ever know. If you want to know how much God loves you, we look at the cross and we see Jesus there with arms open wide saying, this is how much I love you. And so we need to remind ourselves regularly, daily, about God's grace. And as we grasp once again God's amazing grace, as we focus on it, as we let it, the truths, the realities of of God's amazing favor, his unmerited favor, a favor that we don't deserve, as as we let it sink into our hearts, it will transform our behavior. Now I've put a few Bible passages on the very bottom of your outline. If you just have a look at your outline, put some Bible passages on there for you. This is by no means an exhaustive list, but these words that are contained in these passages talk about God's grace in different ways, about the outrageous demonstration of God's grace and how he's loved us through Jesus. And I just want to encourage you, if you want to be blown away by God's grace so that it changes who you are in 2016, not your identity, but your behavior, then use some of those verses, look at them, meditate on them as you go through this year. Allow them to... Now the truth of God's grace to sink into your heart and to be once again falling in love with Jesus who loved himself and gave himself for us. So can I encourage you, focus on God's grace because as you focus on Jesus, as we focus on Jesus, the one who brings God's grace to us, then we will be changed and we will be the kind of people that God wants us to be. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing one song in closing, Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone. Let's, let's just bow our heads and reflect. Maybe you just want to think about those three people that you've written down. And if you haven't, then I'd encourage you to to maybe think about uh, committing to reading Colossians so that you are better equipped to refute wrong teaching and to focusing on God's, God's grace, just being blown away again by the wonders of God's amazing grace that he treats us in a way that we can never begin to imagine deserving. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for the amazing grace of Jesus. 
We thank you for the amazing grace that you have given us in Jesus. That you give us everything. We don't deserve anything. We deserve your wrath. We deserve eternal separation from you. We deserve hell. But we thank you that Jesus took that hell. Jesus took that punishment, that wrath for us there on the cross so that we wouldn't have to. Thank you for the amazing grace that you give to us. Help us, we pray, this year to be blown away, to be inspired, to be driven, to be motivated by the wonderful grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that we through his poverty might be rich. Inspire us. Set us on fire once again this year with a love for you as we encounter your love to us in Jesus. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The band are going to come and lead us in one final song, Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone. And when we've sung this song, the service will be over. If you want to come and talk to me about anything I've said this morning, then please do be delighted to chat with you. Thank you.
The sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine, will be forever